This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. A warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Until six tonight, and then a handover to Dunbar Law. On the program today, author, filmmaker and journalist Anthony Lowenstein and poet, author and human rights activist Sarah Sala talk about their recent books and the forum they're participating on September the 5th, which focuses on the industrial military complex of Israel's exports to the world. Sasha Gillis-Sakakis with part one of the history and present situation in the largest country in Central America, and that's Guatemala. Part two of the Gene Ethics Report for August with Bob Phelps. And finally, Dr. Alison Bronowski looks back on the ALP National Conference. But where will we be without Mr. Kevin Healy and his week that was? A week, Jan, listener, when Deputy Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive Pat Conklinroy said it was dangerous to have one great power controlling the Asia-Pacific region. And I thought, good on you, Pat, finally standing up to the US of the UN of the US of the world and telling it to stop warmongering with bases just everywhere, about 800 worldwide making it strange that Pat made this encouraging comment while announcing spending trillions more on the US of merchants of death industry. Very strange. A few days earlier, Pat told the Socialist Party choreographed get-together that those opposing spending $38 million a day for 30 years on nuclear-trained killers were appeasers, opponents of peace, supporters of Pig Eye and Bob Menzies. That spending trillions to kill people reflects the socialist anti-war history. The best way of dealing with the most uncertain strategic circumstances since 1945, the biggest military build-up since 1945, is investing in the defence of the nation. That will be cheaper in the long run and certainly a lot more beneficial to the true blue Aussie public by promoting and pursuing peace and stability hand trillions to the merchants of death on heaps and heaps of toys for the boys that kill and slaughter and destroy is promoting, pursuing peace and stability. Just when we thought it would be cheaper in the long run not to spend any of it. Pat didn't specify who was engaged in the biggest military build-up, but his subsequent comments indicate he knew it was the US of. Someone should point out to Pat and big supremo Anthony Albinguzi and Pat senior minister Richard Malls, the bad guys, and the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, penny left wing, that George Orwell wasn't serious. It was satire. Another who took George seriously, Deputy Commander of the US of Indo-Pacific Command, Lieutenant General, no, he's an American, Lieutenant General Stephen Stinker, came here to warn us China's military is becoming dangerously arrogant and is fueling the risk of war with the US of. He feared China will seek to establish a military base in Solomon Islands or another Pacific nation as it seeks to dominate the region. And the incredible thing is he said all that with a straight face. At that talk fest, the evil unions, indeed the most evil of evil unions, construction and maritime, 
Oh, how caring, gentle construction, caring employers and maritime caring employers suffer under their lawless anarchy. At that talk fest, they called for evil union representatives on the Reserve Losses Bank Board. Their evil intent exemplified by Secretary Zach Smith. The bank has been willfully out of touch with ordinary true blue Aussies, merrily hitting them with interest rate rises and simultaneously scolding them for modest pay rises after a decade of stagnant wage growth. They can't help themselves, can they, after all caring employers have done for them. The outrageousness of the proposal was expressed on behalf of caring employers by the caring business class shadow economic guru Angus Tailings with a very sensible and balanced this will be a test for Jim Chalmers' capital and Anthony Albingusi's leadership. Will they bend to the pressure of their union paymasters or do the right thing and preserve the independence of our key economic institutions? Wise words, Angus, wise words. Because Angus and the caring business class know that only the caring business class can bring independence to these matters with no bias whatever, acting only in the interests of the very workers who make their life a misery. Oh, sure, sure, once upon a time, a time of great economic reform by nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, a time caring employers urged the Socialist Party to revisit. Then ACTU Secretary Little Billy Kiltham was on the board, but caring employers knew he represented those whom he represented. The unimaginable threat now is they might appoint an evil union representative who represents, wait for it, represents workers, and who therefore cannot bring the independence the captains of industry bring. Oh, and thanks to Angus for revealing, for making... Um, making us aware that the evil unions pay Jim Chalmers capital and Anthony salaries when we naively thought they were on the government payroll. Not that the caring business class is prepared to let the evil of unions and workers get between them and all that lovely, lovely workers' money sitting in super funds. Mentioned last week how filthy rich Anthony Eura Pratt has this plan for having all that workers' money uh, invested in the caring business class, particularly his bit of the caring business class. Why, at a conference looking at super last week, Anthony was photographed at breakfast between the aforementioned world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, and the also aforementioned incumbent Jim Chalmers Capital, although Anthony might not have been that happy with a number of contributions diverting all that lovely, lovely workers' money away from him, including from Chalmers Capital, that super funds should spend trillions investing in the merchants of death industry. Big, big returns from slaughter. Workers fund the toys for the boys. The caring business class determines whom we must hate. Well, more accurately, as told by the US of whom we must hate. And impressionable young workers who just love the toys for the boys are rounded up and set off to kill and be killed to defend the caring business class status quo without the caring business class risking any of their not-so-hard-earned. It's brilliant. As Jim put it, it's an opportunity for the merchants of death industry to be a bigger part of our thinking when it comes to the role of superannuation. Thinking, that's what he said, thinking. And gee, all that spending, including the 38 mil a day for 30 years, is obviously not enough. 
but the sheer uh, the sheer common sense of the proposal was flanked by another former big economic guru, Joe Hackey, the workers, now a consultant and investor in the merchants of death industry, saging through a cloud of cigar smoke. It's time that super funds step up to the plate and give everyday true blue Aussies the chance to invest in their own security. See, ever thinking only of the country, only of all of us, of everyday true blue Aussies, like his mates the filthiest rich of. And we can be certain Joe will come up with a plan that sees workers' money transferred into his pocket as they invest for him. Joe the leader. But that's the, that super think fest, we'd never suggest idiot fest, think fest, was just one of the big occasions this week when the socialists showed they're prepared to socialise with anyone if it's for the common good, like Anthony and, um, and Dad and the team mingling with the cream of the corporate world at the 70th birthday bash of a big end-of-town law firm with the principal declaring, and we'd have to agree, the injustices Indigenous Troublawazis continue to suffer, how they have been scarred by dispossession, disrespect and racism. Likening it to, well... The plight of the Palestinian people, I hear you say. Dispossession, disrespect, racism. Well, no. Similar weapons that have been used against the Jewish people for millennia. Which is also true, but sadly he didn't see the irony in his words. Two wrongs do not make a right. And then they all tripped up to a big night with the Business Profits Council, annual meeting combined with a farewell to retiring Supremo Jennifer Westercutt wages, praising the role she has played in racking her mind over just how caring employers could solve low wages growth, a problem poor Jennifer never solved, but an appropriate occasion for the Profits Council and the cream of the corporate world to point out to Anthony and Jim et al., the desperate need for tax reform for those who don't pay tax, not paying tax, and for those who can't avoid paying tax, paying even more through the GST, increase the GST, widen its scope and slash taxes for the filthy rich, and we'll all be better off. For it's a matter of balance. What could be fairer than a progressive for the rich tax that is regressive and taxes the poorest of the poor, who then benefit from the filthy rich not paying tax as the cornucopia trickles down, those famous drops of yellow liquid. And after a week of socialising with the very people the socialists are committed to undermining, we can be sure they'll return to their roots this week, and Anthony and Jim and Pat and Penny and Dan, well, all of them, will pop down to a homeless refuge and breakfast with the poorest of the poor where, of course, they'll feel so much more at home. They'll tell them they understand they're doing it tough, which would have been incongruous this week. Oh, and a little warning. If we're planning a flight somewhere, might pay to check the um, passenger list before boarding, and, and if we notice someone on the list who has upset Russian Supremo Vlad Poison, probably makes sense to, to wait for another flight. Two years ago, the share price of Domino's... How, how to Make a Killing Pizza, hit $160, showing the value of a salt, sugar and fat killing. But sadly, oh so sadly, this week the share price tumbled to $53, going down like dominoes. Don't our hearts bleed for the poor shareholders? As Supremo Don Major Prophet explained, 
Inflation had forced up prices, but this year he hoped things would be better. Don't suppose Don thought that just maybe, I know it's a long shot, but just maybe people are concerned about their health, which is bad for Don's wealth. But good for big fossil polluter AG Health for the planet's bottom line health, the benefits of privatisation we were all promised. The state government, which says it so cares about climate change, if there is such a thing, is paying the polluter to keep polluting by keeping a beautiful, don't be afraid of it, coal-fired power plant open for years longer than even the company planned, just in case the planet lasts that long. Imagine if they didn't care about climate change, if there is. And finally, the government has presumably spent heaps on this report looking 40 years into the future, telling us, surprise, surprise, it's going to get hotter and we're going to live longer. I could have told them that for nothing. Well, we could have told them that for nothing, listener. Good afternoon. And more of Kevin tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock with friends or City Limits. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. Human rights and the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of Surveillance. How is the struggle for Palestine connected to wider struggles against racism and injustice? How has Israel managed to leverage its weapons and surveillance technology to forge strategic partnerships around the world? How does the experience of intergenerational trauma affect the work of Jewish and Palestinian human rights advocates today? On Tuesday, the 5th of September, Free Palestine Melbourne and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society will be hosting a joint forum at RMIT University in which journalist and writer Anthony Lowenstein and poet and human rights activist Sarah Salah will discuss their work, writing and activism with APAN educator and community organiser Noura Mansour. The event will be the first in which Free Palestine Melbourne and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society have cooperated. Its purpose is to give both writers an opportunity to discuss and answer questions on writings, human rights advocacy, intergenerational trauma and issues of Jewish and Palestinian identity in the modern era. Both Anthony, whose latest book, The Palestine Laboratory, was published in May, and Sarah, whose debut novel, Songs for the Dead and the Living, will be available to sign copies of their book, which will be on sale after the forum. I spoke with Anthony at the weekend and pointed out that he's been a a journalist, an independent filmmaker, and written a number of books, some focusing on Israel-Palestine and others not. And I asked him first what led him to first research 
and then published this latest book, which he called The Palestine Laboratory. So I was living there between 2016 and 2020, and I've been visiting there since 2005, on and off every three or four years. And I think over the years, I was interested in looking at an issue that wasn't just the conflict itself. Obviously, it's important to cover the conflict, and there are some good journalists who are writing about the day-to-day, the ongoing occupation, the brutality of Israel's behaviour against Palestinians. But many years ago, I wrote a book around disaster capitalism, which wasn't about Palestine, but it was about people and corporations making money for misery. So I looked at the wars in Afghanistan, people making money from the aid industry, from the mining industry around the world. And I think when I was living there with my partner in 2016 in Palestine and East Jerusalem, I started looking much more closely at, I guess, the Israeli companies that were developing weapons to initially oppress Palestinians in Palestine. And I guess over time, I started investigating the issue wider and realized that pretty much for most of Israel's existence, although it pretty much accelerated after 1967, after the Six-Day War, there was huge amounts of tools and technologies that Israel was using against Palestinians, that they were using to test against Palestinians, and they used this term battle-tested. And they sell those tools and technologies to many other regimes around the world to repress their own people. And I'm talking in the modern age about issues like drones and spyware and facial recognition technology and biometric tools and all these kinds of tools of repression. And and it seemed to me that this was something that some people knew, but not nearly enough people. In other words, the occupation of Palestine of Palestinians is bad enough. But essentially what's happened is that now the occupation is being exported around the world. Where did you find that the finance and also the know-how has come from for them to develop these techniques that they have now and the weapons? Well, huge amounts of money. Israel spends unbelievable amounts of money every year simply on repressing Palestinians. I mean, the occupation of Palestine is the longest in modern times. It started in 1967, um, although in some ways the occupation of Palestine began in after 1948, after Israel's birth, but particularly since 1967. And over those 56 years, there's been massive amounts, I mean, billions upon billions of dollars invested by Israel, both the government and also private industry, to develop all these weapons. I mean, to, to maintain an occupation of millions of Palestinians, which is what Israel's been doing, takes a hell of a lot of work and effort and resources and weapons. And the brutalization, the dehumanization of Palestinians is something that Israel has sadly and tragically and outrageously developed over such a long period of time. And there's been seemingly an unlimited amount of money that Israel will spend to do so. And therefore, over the years, many other nations around the world, and I'm talking about over 130 nations in the last half century, democracies and dictatorships, have been keen to get some part of those tools, those weapons. And I mean, everyone from apartheid South Africa back in the day to brutal regimes in Latin and South America in the 70s and 80s to brutal regimes in Africa in the modern era, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, UAE, Myanmar, Rwanda. And what struck me in the research of this book was how extensive, I mean, 130 nations in the world is the majority of nations on the planet. And they have bought some form of Israeli technology or defense equipment or weapon in the last half century. And I think what I try to explain in the book 
is not just the idea of buying a weapon or buying spyware or buying a drone. That's obviously part of it, and of course it nets Israel money. But it's actually much more than that. In some cases, it's simply, and it's this is not a monetary issue as much as the idea that Israel sells the idea of getting away with it. And what I mean by that is that Israel has essentially complete impunity globally. There's no real pressure on Israel to win its occupation. Much of the West, including Australia, is seemingly 110% behind what Israel's doing. There's no political price for Israel to do this brutal occupation against Palestinians. And I think many other nations find that attractive. They like the idea of being able to repress their own minorities or human rights activists or dissidents, whoever it may be. So that's part of it. And finally, there are a number of nations over the last half century I think apartheid South Africa is one, India today under Prime Minister Modi, that are ethno-nationalist states. Currently, India is trying to build a Hindu fundamentalist regime where Muslims, 200 million Muslims in India are being repressed. There are pogroms against Muslims regularly in India. And it's remarkable how little intention this gets in the West, including here in Australia, because so much of the West has warmly embraced India because they're not China. And India and Israel are incredibly close. Now, India is doing what it's doing, not because of Israel, but it's inspired by Israel. And they openly say that. You have Indian officials talking in the last years about how much they admire what Israel is doing in the West Bank to occupy Palestinian land, saying they want to do something similar in Kashmir, bringing in huge amounts of Hindus from the south into the northern part of India, which is a Muslim-majority area. So... I see Israel in some ways, and I speak, by the way, as someone who is Jewish. I'm a, I was brought up in Melbourne as a Jew. And I'm not religious by any means these days, but I'm a proud Jew, although a secular one. And I'm deeply ashamed of what Israel's become in the 21st century. Can you talk about the money that's come from the United States over many, many years? It's billions of dollars every year. How significant is that in what Israel is able to do and does? I think it's a massive factor. I don't think it's the only one, but it's huge. Israel has given, really, in the last half century, massive amounts of money. Um, We don't actually know the exact figure because the official figure every year at the moment is anywhere between four to six billion. That's partly military aid, but also other kinds of so-called aid. And if you count that up over decades, of course, that's a massive amount of money. So they're giving huge amounts of support to Israel and there's no political price for Israel to do what it's doing. But it's more than that. It's not just a financial aspect from the US. It's also diplomatic support, military support. I think it's also philosophical support in a way and political support that at a time where one looks at a UN vote in Israel or Palestine, on the face of it, it looks like much of the world is against Israel. There's a vote, regularly votes about what Israel is doing in Palestine, and pretty much every vote, there's much of the world on one side. And then the other side is maybe about six countries, the US, Israel, sometimes Australia, a handful of Pacific Island states, which are mostly client states of the US. So on the face of it, it looks like the vast bulk of the world is against what Israel is doing. But in fact, the US being the world's only superpower protects Israel in profound ways from any kind of punishment, any kind of cult, any kind of accountability, any kind of possibility of appearing, for example, before the International Criminal Court in The Hague. So US support, yes, it's financial to be sure, and it's huge, but it's interesting in the last while, there's been a growing talk both on the left 
uh, but also in parts of the Israeli right, to say we don't want Israeli, we don't want American aid. That American aid, in fact, is holding us back somehow. That by having aid, military aid, which is roughly four billion a year, then America can ask things from us. That somehow we're not an independent state. Now, I would argue that if that aid stopped tomorrow, Israel would do just fine. The aid is arguably no longer required. But what Israel does still need, I would suggest, is that diplomatic protection, that potentially military protection. Now, I don't think Israel is militarily threatened. Particularly day to day, but the possibility that world's only superpower will come to your aid if something happens, I think, is a very powerful idea. And also the moral support from the United States、mm. when you talk about the millionaires and the billionaires who are also supporting, apart from the government, to Israel. I think it's a big factor. I mean, the moral issue and the Argument that Israel and frankly, that America and frankly Australia makes as well. I mean, you hear our current Prime Minister Albanese or Penny Wong, the Foreign Minister, routinely talk about we share values with Israel. And I often want to say to them, "What are you talking about? What values are you referring to? This is complete nonsense. We share the idea of occupation or brutality, and of course, it's pretty clear that every single settler colonial country in the world, New Zealand." Australia, U.S., Canada, and others are 110% behind Israel, and that's not accidental. I think there is a solidarity of sorts between various settler colonial states, of which Israel, of course, is a key one. And obviously, there's also for many in the U.S. Yes, there's no doubt a large Jewish, powerful population. There's an Israel lobby. Which puts huge amounts of pressure on both politicians and also the media to toe a certain line. They give huge amounts of money to the parties to also toe a certain line to try to exclude politicians either sitting or who are running in、uh, elections to not be too critical of Israel at all. And I think also we can't ignore the fact that there is a legacy of the Holocaust. I mean, I, I see this. It's not often articulated this way, but I see that as a relevant issue where. Less than 80 years after the end of the Second World War, the Holocaust, which impacted huge amounts of people around the world, including my family, many of whom were killed in the Holocaust, and I think much of the West, talking about the U.S. and Australia and Europe, are still feeling. It's hard to often explain what it is. It's either a, a an obligation. Obviously, some countries feel guilt. I mean, Germany is an interesting case. Germany, of course, was. Clearly, should feel guilt. I mean, for what happened, I'm not denying that. But the way that they show that in the 21st century is to be unbelievably pro-Israel and incredibly anti-Palestinian to the point where, if you're a Palestinian or if you're protesting for Palestine in Germany, which happens all the time, peacefully, you are arrested, you are assaulted by police simply for protesting in support of Palestine. It's absolutely outrageous. So Germany, in my view, in this particular case, has taken the lessons of history in the wrong direction. I'm just thinking about the memory of the Holocaust and how sections of our media make sure that that's been kept in the the minds of the people, particularly when Israel is under a bit of attack. You'll find maybe on SBS or the ABC there'll be a, a story or a, or a film about the Holocaust. Obviously, in some ways, I feel mixed about that. I mean, I'm, as I said, Jewish. Much of my family was killed in the Holocaust in、um, Auschwitz, actually. And I, on the one hand, have no issue with people 
talking about the Holocaust, remembering it, teaching it. I have no issue with that. However, having said that, I think it also has been massively weaponized. It is used very much as a silencer against people. Now, I personally don't compare. Some people do on the left. I don't compare what Israel's doing now to Nazis. But there's no doubt that, to me, the legacy of the Jewish people in the 21st century, of which there's roughly 14, 15 million Jews in the world, it's a remarkably small community, Most half of which are in Israel, half of which are in the US, and a handful of others, of course, around the world, you know, here and the UK, etc. But it's a, essentially the vast bulk of the Jewish community in the entire world are in two countries, US and Israel. And I think for many people, the idea somehow of saying, which I used to hear when I was growing up as a Jew in Melbourne in the 70s and 80s, that because of what happened to us as Jews, we have an obligation, a moral obligation to support Israel uncritically. And we therefore should put pressure on others to also support Israel. I think is increasingly hard to justify, frankly. It was always hard to justify, but even more so in the 21st century when you have a far-right fascist Israeli government, which is openly advocating ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. And that's a reason why in many countries, including here in Australia, there's a growing shift in public opinion. And my book came out just a few months ago here in, in the US and the UK. And I've been really amazed with the amount of, not just support so much, but interest. And I think there's a growing openness of many people to discuss Palestine, to understand that what's happening there, as I say in this book, is not just about Palestine. These issues go far broader than that. And when you have an Israeli government that's so openly extreme and far-right, I think it makes those arguments much easier to make. Just staying with the Australian connection, I'm sure it's not lost on you that when you when you have the forum on the 5th of September, it's going to be held at RMIT University, mm. an institution with connections with Albert Systems. How many more of those are there that we might not know about? Yeah, for listeners who don't know what that means, let me just briefly explain. So Elbert is Israel's leading defence company. A lot of my book actually talks about Elbert. They did lots of things around the world uh, in terms of including building weapons and drones. And RMIT, to its shame, made an association with Elbert. I can't remember what year it was, but in the last years. And uh, Elbert is trying to make far more associations. The Victorian government, in fact, the last few years has signed deals with Elbert to open a, a centre. I don't think it's open yet. I think it's in the coming years. Australian government, federally, this is both um, under the former Liberal government and even currently under the Labor government, have made deals with Elbert and other Israeli companies as well. And one of the things I think that many people are calling for who support BDS, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions against Israel, is a military boycott. That there is There is a severing of ties militarily between Israel and say Australia, and I note, although I'm not a member of the Greens, I've got no formal involvement with them, but the Greens recently released a new policy in relation to Israel-Palestine, and one of the things they call for, amongst many other things, is a severing of military ties between Australia and Israel, and that's something I very much welcome. And how, how significant is that? The, the ties. The, the new policy? No, the, the, ties? Ti- the ties. Are the ties? Are the ties? Are, look, they're nothing like the US and Australia, of course, but they are significant. And Israel, in some ways, I would argue, you know, Australia's part of the so-called Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network, which is US, UK, uh, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And that's basically a 
intelligence sharing network that's been founded for decades, where the US really is the leader of that pack, of course, being the superpower. And Israel is not part of that. As I said, those five nations don't include Israel. But unofficially, I would argue, in fact, Israel is number six. And the reason I say that is that Israel is not just a close military partner with Australia, and you have leading politicians regularly talking about how close they are. And I mean, it's not just a military connection, it's an ideological connection. I mean, you have liberal politicians, national politicians, uh, labor politicians, and it's, people might not be aware of this, but regularly politicians are sent to Israel by the Israel lobby in Australia to go on propaganda trips. This is labor, liberal, national party, the Greens generally don't go on those trips, thankfully. The other parties do. It's paid for by the Israel lobby, and those chips are aimed to propagandize so that when they come back, they are even more committed to Israel than they were before. Many journalists also take those trips, in my view, shamefully. So that sort of thing doesn't get much attention in the public. I've written a lot about this over the years. And I think the impact of that is that not every single person who goes on those trips comes back a propagandist, but frankly, most do. And I think those chips shouldn't even exist. I don't think there should be a... I mean, it's interesting to note, I should say, alongside that, that these sort of propaganda trips are not just happening to Israel, that um, there's been some research done in the last years that shows that most of these sort of propaganda trips by lobby groups is the three top countries that politicians and journalists are visiting is US, Taiwan, Israel. And that's not accidental. <laughs> there's a reason for that. I mean, the Israel one's obvious, the US one's also obvious because of the close ties that we have and the idea that Australia is sadly, a, in my view, a client state of the US and Taiwan, because many politicians are being sent to Taiwan to try to foster, in my view, a deeply unhealthy new Cold War with China. And by sending politicians and journalists to Taiwan, they're building that kind of movement. So those kind of lobby trips, and obviously those trips the Taiwan are not paid for by the Israel lobby, they're paid for by groups associated with the Taiwanese government. But all these kinds of trips, which mostly happen relatively secretly without much media attention, despite a handful of us, including me, talking about it, I think are deeply unhealthy in a democracy. Well, I think most people would say that since 1948 or 1967 that Israel's done its darndest to destroy self-determination and a political identity for the Palestinians but they haven't yes. succeeded, where does it go from here? The people are not not going to go. No, they haven't succeeded. I mean, what they've succeeded in a way is building increasing global coalitions and movements to support Palestine. I mean, where Israel, this is what I talk a bit about in the book, but also um, in other work I've done, is what really concerns me is that Israel, and nothing is inevitable about this, but Israel seems to be on a very scary trajectory towards some kind of growing theocracy. That there are huge numbers, and it's not a majority, but it's a sizable minority of Jews in Israel whose ideal vision is a theocracy. And their ideal vision is the Taliban. Now, of course, Taliban, not a Muslim, but of course, um, Jewish. A fundamentalist Jewish state. And if people hear that and think that sounds extreme, it's not. I mean, it's, yes, it would be extreme, but it's a lot more Israeli Jews than people think. And it's not a majority, but it's a growing minority of people. And what concerns me about that is that there is, in the West, I think, for a long time, been 
almost a head in the sand about where Israel is going. If you as a Western nation and Western community support settlements and the occupation for over half a century, these are the people that you're supporting, not you, that we're supporting in the West. This is what we are supporting. We are supporting a fundamentalist, far-right, fascist movement of Jewish settlers who believe that they have the right to the land and Palestinian Israelis should not be there. They should be killed or they should be expelled. And one of the things that concerns me is that the key members of the current Israeli government under Prime Minister Netanyahu openly talk about their vision being ethnic cleansing. That's their vision, pushing out as many Palestinians as possible. And they say openly that they didn't finish the job in 1948, which when, of course, there was ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. So the idea that this is the rhetoric, this is the environment in which Israel appears to be moving. And yes, there's opposition to this and there are people who don't support that, to be sure, but a lot less people than you would think. And I think a lot of people, including me, are raising the alarm and saying this is the direction this country is going unless much of the West starts to rise up and oppose it, just like they did eventually against apartheid South Africa. The same kind of response is required against Israel in the 21st century. Well, finally... Anthony, the forum on the 5th of September, taking into account all of what you've just said, what will the focus be? The focus will be on a few things. One, it'll be about my book, which, as you say, is the Palestine Laboratory, talking about that, why that work is, I think, timely and has resonated with a lot of people. Another speaker is Sarah Seller, who is part Palestinian, and she'll be speaking a lot about both her experience as a writer, but also as a Palestinian as well, and the experience, because obviously I'm Jewish, so my experience is very different to hers. I think we'll also be speaking, because we are going to be at RMIT, we are going to be speaking about the collusion between RMIT and Elbert and why I think that's outrageous and should be stopped. And I think fourthly, probably a sense of the role Australia can play, that we are, even under a Labor government now, not particularly doing very much to address the situation there. We very much follow what the US wants us to do. And there's a role for Australia to play if we choose to take it. And the Greens, in their their recent policy, have shown a way forward there. So I think it'll be all those issues. And, of course, also discuss the reality in Israel-Palestine today. So it's a great event and people should all come. Thanks very much, Anthony. Thank you so much, Jan. Appreciate it. I've been speaking with journalist, independent filmmaker and author, Anthony Lowenstein, whose latest book is The Palestine Laboratory. And together with my next guest, poet and human rights activist Sarah Sala will be presenting a joint forum on Palestine and the Israeli arms trade hosted by Free Palestine Melbourne and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. And the venue, RMIT Building 80, Level 4, Room 7, 455 Swanson Street. And that's next Tuesday, 5th of September at 630 now to poet, author and human rights activist, Sarah Suller. Sarah, we'll mainly be talking about your writing, but there's much more to your work. And I first learned about you when you were working with APAN, but there's much more to that too, isn't there, your human rights work? Uh, yeah, my journey started uh, quite, a, <laughs> quite a while before that, actually. I've been uh, working with the multiple, or I have worked with multiple NGOs, both in Australia, um, so-called Australia, so locally and also internationally, and um, within um, areas of like racial justice and refugee rights. Uh, so I started actually with Amnesty International as well, 
and then kind of uh, various uh, stops before ending up at APEN. And does that human rights activism sort of come from your Palestinian background somewhere in there that you work for human oh, rights? Definitely. I think that um, there's this saying uh, that often Palestinians, we joke about how we learn to march before we even speak <laughs> or, or walk in the sense that, you know, our parents have taken us to rallies and we've grown up in homes that are very critically conscious for obvious reasons. And I think for me, growing up in a family where stories uh, were such a big part of that household and, you know, stories and uh, faith, which was actually a big driver as well in terms of our faith motivates us to, t to take a stance against injustice and to fight for justice. I think those things aligned with our background was probably one of the biggest reasons why we're very passionate about Palestine, but about justice broadly, social justice broadly. Can you talk a little bit more about that background, your parents and their struggles as well as your struggles? My mother actually um, was the inspiration for this book. Her migration story actually was the inspiration for uh, the novel Songs for the Dead and the Living. And she actually grew up in a home where my grandparents, my grandfather specifically, was, you know, not able to grow up in Palestine, though they were exiled. And so growing up in Lebanon and through the Civil War, I think, left quite a lot of psychological scars, I guess you can say. And so growing up in that environment, in the environment of uncertainty, in the environment of being Palestinian in Lebanon, and that, of course, has its own kind of baggage, I think, as well, because of the political situation there, was probably a big motivation for her alongside my dad, who grew up in Egypt at a time where, uh, you know, there was a growing anti-colonial struggle or growing anti-colonial resistance post the British and then pan-Arabism as a sort of political ideology. So without going too much into the history of it, I mean, I've got parents who are, again, both very critically conscious, politically conscious, um, active, have very strong opinions, as, as most Arabs do, on political situation, but also wanted to do things in their small you know, ways to be able to, again, pursue uh, justice. Well, you write that writing is a, an act of resistance. When did that begin? <sighs> I mean, I think that I've been writing my whole life for, you know, uh, in various ways about various things. I've been very lucky that, again, my parents very big on oral storytelling. So I grew up in a household where there was a lot of story, a lot of music, a lot of art, but also reading. And I think for any writer, before you become a writer, before you are a writer, you're a reader. But I think when I first became politically active is probably much more around when I was younger and in addition to, you know, hearing our family talk about what's going on in Palestine, you know, all the time or having the news in the background all the time. I will never forget the death of Mohammed al-Durra, whom you might remember, Jan, died in Gaza in the year 2000. And again, people might not recall his name, but they might remember the image of him. He was an 11-year-old, you know, who could have easily passed for my, you know, my own family member and was shot and murdered. And the image of him that went viral before, you know, social media viral, um, the image of him was dying in his father's arms. And I think that for me was one of those watershed moments that kind of really instills, you know, that conscience in you from a young age that there is some serious injustice in the world. And how does one reconcile that? You know, how as an 11 year old, me, myself, seeing this person who is also 11, leading a very different, different life, ending up in a different, yeah, a different fate and just wondering what we can do to be able to stop that or change that and make the world better. Did you choose poetry or did poetry choose you? <laughs> 
That's a great question. And I always say that I think that sometimes uh, you've got to let poetry come out of you and and, and find itself uh, as opposed to just constantly excavating for it. But yes, I think very much uh, we sort of found each other. I fell into poetry by accident. I've been writing, again, as I said, for a very long time, but my focus was on nonfiction. And there was a point in time where I was just not really, you know, feeling what I was writing. And I just needed a sort of break. And someone suggested going to this uh, performance poetry night called the Bankstown Poetry Slam. And I ended up going there as a sort of one-off but uh, fell in love so much with the scene, with the people, with the poetry and the, the way that, you know, the topics that were performed were so relatable, um, where they were just everything from Palestine, of course, and other social justice issues like refugee rights and indigenous rights, but also things like family and love and friendship and, you know, sisterhood. And so I thought it was a wonderful place to be able to bring all these identities, all these parts of myself and perform a place that felt really safe and felt really familiar. Do you remember your first poem? I do. (laughs) I actually do. I performed it in November of 2013, I believe, and it was um, no surprises about our terrible immigration system and detention centers and how we lock up people uh, indefinitely. And so I remember performing that as my first piece, and uh, I ended up winning the slam that night, which was also very memorable. After that first time, how was it? How long was it before you really got into poetry and you actually won a major award? Yeah, the award came five years after I started performing, five or six years. But I think that's the beauty. I never really stopped, you know, performing or writing poetry. But what I ended up doing was really just focusing on my growth as a poet and my journey as an artist. And so really just being able to be part of a community that's kind of flat and non-hierarchical, a community of poets who really just encouraged each other to explore our poetry and explore our craft and you know, go and seek, uh, go and, you know, attend workshops where we wanted to, like, be able to refine the poetry. And so going from that, uh, as I said, a baby poet to growing into that journey and, and getting to a point where I was, I felt confident enough to submit a poem to a prize definitely took a while. It took five, six years before I felt ready and confident to do that. But I think part of that was also because. I didn't really feel, it wasn't just the confidence, it wasn't just a self-confidence thing. I think it was also being able to see yourself in those places. You know, a lot of mainstream arts and arts institutions aren't very, or, you know, weren't as welcoming of people, particularly people of various, you know, diverse backgrounds and people of Palestinian background, as you would well know, Jen, um, because, you know, we face this constant erasure in arts and in other in other areas, of course, too. So for me, I think there was a lot of concern around that, but I finally felt brave enough and unapologetic enough to put in this poem because I realized that we have a right you know, to be here, we have a right to tell our stories, and we should be able to do that with full agency however we choose to. Can you tell that story behind the poem? A lot of things, but mainly it came at a time where during um period uh, in, I think it was, just around COVID where I was sort of self-auditing and realizing how much there's a lot of pressure on Muslims uh, and or, you know, Palestinians, as seeing as identifies both to be, you know, model migrants, to be perfect, to not be able to make mistakes in their lives. And I realized that that was just 
setting ourselves up for failure because obviously just like anyone we are full humans complex messy we will make choices and those choices don't always end up good or perfect and i think that's okay to be able to have the grace to make mistakes and the space to learn from that and to just fully embrace ourselves as people who are you know do not need to fall into that model minority trap or to aspire to that whiteness and what was happening that you decided to move on to writing a novel in some ways, I've always been writing this novel, Dan. I mean, I, I say that it's been a work of, you know, four years, but really my whole life, but really even 75 years plus. Uh, so that would, you know, be in reference to the Nakba, of course. And for me, um, I, as a writer and an artist, I've always really loved challenging myself and the craft and the playing with language is such an exciting part of writing for me. And so being able to move from, you know, nonfiction essay um, to poetry to then write prose. And I was I was already writing short stories as well. So to be able to make that jump felt very natural. And I was able to bring in the lessons that I was learning from poetry about, you know, the musicality of language, its malleability, its the ability to you know, know the rules so that one can break them in craft and play with language that all of the exciting parts, I think, for me was was part of why I wanted to shift into the medium of a long form novel. But then, of course, there was also the substance in a way. I think part of what seeded the idea for the novel was just, you know, exploring the themes of it, which, you know, we can talk to a little bit as well. You can. Yes. The novel, I think, started out for me, um, I, I really love various genres, including uh, spec fiction, and it started out as a speculative fiction novel, um, sort of very similar to that first poem I performed at the Slam. It was going to be set in a detention center because, as you know, I've been very active in being critical of and fighting the government's, um, well, the many governments' immigration policies and sort of trying to get detention centers shut down or in the very least indefinite detention as a policy to be ended because of how just cruel and inhumane it is and how we were seeing the impacts of those policies on people that we know, on people who identified as refugees and asylum seekers, the long-term terrible impact. So in any case, that's kind of how the novel started. But the more I wrote about it, the more I found myself writing this particular scene in the book, which is the first chapter that was written, was uh, the main character, Jamila, and her family's, uh, you know, fleeing, her family fleeing from Beirut during the Civil War, during the Lebanese Civil War. So that particular scene just kept coming back to me. And I realized that there was a period where I had been reflecting on myself as a writer, but as a person and my healing journey, you know, why is it that Sarah is the way that Sarah is? How did Sarah come to be? What what factors and confluence of events shaped my trajectory? And in looking at that, you inevitably also then find yourself looking at your parents and why are they the way that they are? How did they end up the way that they are? And I've already, you know, I've said to you, I've given you a bit of their background or the backstories, their origin stories, if you will. And I was very interested in how one event like fleeing one night in the middle of the night from the war in Lebanon or fleeing in parallel from what was happening in Palestine during the Nakba, which is, of course, ongoing, how one incident can literally have an impact and can shape the trajectories, the life of people for generations to come. So I think that that was sort of the thread that I kept finding myself wanting to pull and needing to pull. And in doing that, unraveled a whole novel, I suppose. Have you been able to travel to Beirut and Palestine 
to look at the places that your family have talked about? Yes, I've been very lucky and privileged in that uh, part of my childhood I actually spent, uh, I, I, I went to school in the Middle East. And so we were able to travel to Lebanon and uh, visit, you know, family and my grandma and my grandfather before he passed away. And so I have very clear memories and a very clear sense of, of Lebanon and of Beirut and growing up there. And the same with Cairo. I've also been to Palestine twice. And so within that, you know, have my own experiences. But of course, in wanting to relay the Nakba, for example, particularly what happened in the lead up, a lot of research had to go into that. You know, I think this was one of probably my favorite parts of writing was the ability to actually lean into Palestinian scholarship, Palestinian voices, Palestinian testimony to be able to research and write those parts. Because so often we're told that, you know, we can't be objective or we can't speak to our experiences, that we you know, speak to it in, a, in an objective or proper way. And as a matter of fact, uh, we can and we should. And so I was able to elevate that um, in my research for the, for the parts on Palestine. And uh, with Lebanon, I just I'll add that I was very lucky last year to be able to secure a grant. It's the Nilma Sydney Travel Grant. And I was able to go to Lebanon again. And so having these opportunities um, through this sort of material support, uh, I was able to then go do my research, visit the places, but also speak to people, particularly because uh, the book is set in the 70s and 80s. And so, of course, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't around then. So I needed to do research. I needed, needed to talk to people. I needed to talk to members of my family. Even things as simple as conversation over a cup of coffee in the kitchen um, was, was research that I was able to put into the book. And your mother's memories are in that book as well? I mean, the book is almost entirely fiction, but yes, uh, as I uh, said earlier, I mean, this, writing this story was certainly a way, and we were certainly inspired by my mom's family experience of migration and displacement. But, you know, I, I think the most beautiful part was that it was a way to connect with her, because prior to this book, prior to this novel, I had no idea of her experiences relating to the war and to the, you know, to exile, to them fleeing even. And I couldn't believe that, you know, I'd, I'd lived with my mom for 30 plus years and I did not know that these things had happened, like the extent of the detail, because she didn't talk about it. And maybe the reason she didn't talk about it was because it was too difficult. Maybe it's because I never bothered asking because I realized that, you know, it, it is a it is a really challenging conversation to have. There's a lot of trauma there that I didn't feel equipped to sort of unpack at the time. But yeah, having, you know, many a kitchen countertop conversation over coffee as part of my research, as I said, was so enriching. And it, as I mentioned to you earlier, it made me realize that so much of the situation that we're in is not really a result of the random, but is a product of a chain of events that started out with this inciting incident that shaped my mom and shaped my family and shaped where we are, how we are, you know, how we love, how we leave, but also realizing that though your, you know, um, circumstances might be limited, you still have or, you know, set in a, in a specific direction, you always still have agency and you always still have choice. It's just what those choices look like and how they differ between one set of circumstances and another. What was her reaction to the book when she read it? She's really um, proud. And I think she keeps joking that she wants part of the royalties and... <laughs> We, we have talked about who would play her if it um, turned into a movie, which is funny. But uh, I think for her, being able to just joke about it is her way of coping with it because it is obviously quite a heavy read and quite a heavy 
exploration of a lot of the things, as I said, that she's still coming to terms with. So she's very proud. She's very happy. And she's, I think she loves that she was able to help put it together in a way, because though it is fiction, there are some some bits and pieces that are, of course, um, inspired by her. And, and we were able to share that and put that in there. In a week's time, you'll be on a joint forum with Auntie Lowenstein at RMIT University. What are you hoping from that forum? I'm really looking forward to that discussion because I think it's it's um, really interesting to be able to bring two writers from various backgrounds, and I don't just mean cultural backgrounds and politics, but also uh, the fact that we are both writers who approach you know writing about Palestine and the craft from very different angles. So I think that's going to be a really interesting and insightful discussion or lens through which you know how do we talk about Palestine and how do we tell stories about Palestine? Anthony using, of course, his sort of investigative journalism hat and me with my poetry and, and my fiction storytelling or, or kind of hijab, I say, uh, that the hats that I wear using a poetry and, and prose and delving through those mediums and looking at the different ways that we share those stories. I think that's going to be really interesting. And of course, it's also great that it's a, a joint forum organised by Free Palestine Melbourne and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society, the first one that they have done. Yes, and I think that's the other part too, in addition to sort of the kind of the literary conversations, no doubt we'll be delving into the politics of it. And I, you know, and I know that it's not something that we easily separate, but in any case, you know, art from politics. But I think there will be certainly a discussion on the kind of the shifts that we're seeing. Both, again, Anthony and I have been very active in this uh, movement for quite some time. And I think, you know, often it's easy to forget that there has been a lot that has brought us to this moment and that there has been a shift. When looking back, you know, the long-term view of the last 10, 15 years, I'm really interested in discussing those dynamics and looking at the ways forward as well. Look forward to seeing you there, Sarah. Thank you, Jen. I've been speaking with poet and writer Sarah Sala, and she'll be on the podium with Anthony Lowenstein on the 5th of September it's a joint forum on Palestine, the Israeli arms trade, and it's hosted by Free Palestine Melbourne and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. And the venue, again, RMIT Building 80, Level 4, Room 7, 445 Swanson Street in the city, next Tuesday, 5th of September at 630 Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Despite attempts by the elite to disqualify 
and even remotely progressive candidate, the people have elected a centre-left progressive leader. The country is Guatemala in a second round of voting on the 20th of August. Guatemala is the country for discussion today with PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. Part one today and part two in the program next week. But first, Sasha, your starting date for the largest country in Central America. My starting point for Guatemala absolutely has to be the indigenous civilizations of Guatemala, uh, particularly because we have one of the most well-known, one of the most renowned indigenous civilizations that we know of to this point, and that is the Maya civilization. So often when we think of these, you know, Mesoamerican civilizations, we of course have the Aztecs, the Incas, and of course the Maya. Now the Maya do also extend into Mexico, Belize, El Salvador, Honduras, but their heartland is in what is today Guatemala. And the Maya presided over a really fascinating civilization that was quite different from the Aztecs, actually. And we still don't fully know the details of their political system, of their religion, because they suffered quite a few calamities. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the Maya. What we do know is they had a king who was supposedly appointed by their gods, by the Mayan gods. It was a patrilineal system, so the the king would then pass that title onto his son. But unfortunately, we don't have heaps and heaps of information beyond this because the Maya civilization suffered a lot of, as I said, uh, natural disasters. There was a, a natural drought that just crippled the entire civilization. We saw most of the Maya wiped out as a result of this natural disaster, actually why they ended up going into Mexico, into southern Mexico, to flee this drought and to try and find more fertile land. Unfortunately, there was also a lot of internal conflict, and we know this because what came after the Maya was essentially the offshoots of this internal struggle. And there's a lot of different regional kingdoms that come out of the Maya. And look, they do actually consider themselves to be Maya still. So all of these individual kingdoms, these regional power blocks that emerged after the the central Maya kingdom collapsed, they still consider themselves to be Maya, but they're sort of like subgroups of the Maya. So we have the Itza, the Kowok, Alain, all of these groups that ended up becoming, I guess, the inheritors of the Mayan legacy. They uh, lasted right up until the arrival of the Spanish. And the Spanish arrived in 1519. So this is after they've arrived in Mexico, after the Caribbean, even a little bit after they first laid eyes on Peru, the Inca Empire at the time. And Hernán Cortés, he grants uh, the rights to conquer this land to two brothers, Gonzalo de Alvarado and Pedro de Alvarado. Now, this name might be familiar, maybe not because the interview where I mentioned him was quite a while ago, uh, but he was also involved in the conquests of Honduras and Nicaragua, that Pedro de Alvarado, that his brother was involved in this as well. He used these rivalries between the inheritors of the Maya state uh, to essentially complete his conquest. So he allied with one of the kingdoms, the Cachiquel, to fight against their traditional enemies, which were the Quiche. So he used these, you know, these long-running grudges that had run throughout the Maya kingdom or since its collapse as a central empire or a central state. Then he turned on the Cachiquel and he brought the entire area of Guatemala under Spanish control. 
Now, the Spanish also had to confront uh, Guatemala's sometimes very hostile terrain and hostile nature because their first capital, uh, Ciudad Vieja, was destroyed by floods. And they had to move it, the lagoon, in the crater where that settlement had been created. It essentially collapsed under the weight of all of that water from the floods and their city just sunk. Thousands of people died and they had to move it to Antigua, which is a very beautiful colonial city now. It's a tourist attraction for those that go to Guatemala. And because of attacks on that city by neighbouring Mayan civilizations, they then moved it to what is today Guatemala City, Ciudad Guatemala, which is the capital. Uh, but the Spanish, of course, incredibly brutal in their treatment of the indigenous people of the Mayan civilizations that were still there. Again, we saw a huge depopulation, very similar, in fact, to what happened in Mexico. You know, we're talking 80 to 90% of the population perishing, but they survived. The, these Maya civilizations persisted. They did end up repopulating. And this is something that we don't always see in Latin America. So it was quite interesting that the Maya were able to sort of hold on and survive and then also end up actually repopulating that territory. So that's why Guatemala still has a very sizable indigenous population to this day because they were able to and you know this might be down to you know their history of having to survive a lot of internal conflict they were able to survive really remarkable but of course they suffered they they were turned into slaves as a part of the encomienda system so the conquistadors essentially poaching the land and whoever lived on it became their slave to till that land and guatemala very interestingly was a very lucrative colony because that's not the case with most of Central America at the time, but this is because of how rich and fertile their soil is when the Spanish arrive. Food is one of the most critical supplies for an expanding empire. So those Spanish who were in Guatemala were making lots and lots and lots of profit off of fruit and off of cattle and all of these basic food products uh, that are vital for, an ar for armies, for expeditions, um, and even to export into Mexico, down to Peru, and across to Spain and Europe. So Guatemala was actually very, very lucrative for those that controlled the land. And this would also have ramifications after independence, which I'll get to later. But just to give an idea of Guatemala being really a, a prize in Central America because of its agricultural potential. So this was a really critical part of the Spanish Empire in the Americas, to the point where it actually got its own sort of subtitle within um, the Vice Royalty of New Spain. It was the Vice Captaincy of Guatemala. It was its own sort of sub-region of the Vice Royalty of New Spain, which included the Caribbean, which included Mexico and the rest of Central America. But Guatemala was that important uh, that it was sort of elevated. It received a lot of attention from the Spanish monarchy. Of course, all of this wealth and all of this, you know, this money that the Spanish elite were now making sat alongside intense poverty and intense violence, brutality uh, that was meted out against the Maya cultures uh, that were essentially used to make all of that money. And this did not, of course, sit well with the Maya, who were at times a warlike uh, civilization or warlike civilizations when the Spanish arrived. And they fought very, very bitterly against this incursion, up to the point where really we don't see the Spanish fully conquering Guatemala or fully subduing this Mayan resistance until the 1690s. So we're talking 200 years of the Maya resisting the Spanish, large parts of Guatemala practically impassable because if Spanish 
people went there or tried to take the land there, they would be killed without further support from local landlords or from uh, the Spanish government, the Spanish monarchy itself. I do really want to emphasise that the Maya had a lot of agency in resisting the Spanish occupation of Guatemala. We often get this portrayal, even in the Inca Empire and the Aztec Empire, that there was, you know, all of this internal fighting and they couldn't see the bigger picture. And that's what helped Spain destroy them. To a point, that's true. But really, once the Spanish took over, all of these bitter grudges sort of evaporated because they were all being mistreated by the Spanish. So there was a really well-connected, well-thought-out resistance. And we see, you know, this trails throughout independence and into the modern day. Guatemala's indigenous people, I think, really have a reputation as being very, very active, very, very firm proponents of their rights, firm defenders of their rights, because of this really brutal treatment they received, starting with the Spanish. Were they looking for and did they find precious metals? This is part of the reason why Guatemala was so important, because originally Guatemala was not a sort of um, key objective. They didn't really know about Guatemala. They heard a bit about the Maya civilizations um, after conquering Mexico, after conquering Mexico City. And that's what initially drew them down south because they'd heard about these remarkable civilizations. And when they got there, of course, though, they realized that this Maya civilization they had heard of didn't really exist anymore. Technically, yes, there were Maya civilizations, plural, but they weren't that original, you know, this sort of golden age the Spanish had in their mind. They thought it was going to be like Mexico, like the Aztec Empire. But really, you know, it, it had by that point devolved into several regional kingdoms. You know, again, they saw the fertility of the land. This is the most critical thing about Guatemala. Guatemala now has um, precious metals, nickel, uranium, gold. But even today, they're not exploited to make a lot of money. There, there really hasn't been the necessary investment to take full advantage of that. And at the time, it was non-existent. No need for uranium. They didn't even know what that was at the time. Um, the gold was nothing compared to what was in Mexico not really any silver, so they went down to uh, the Inca Empire for that. The, the minerals were not the critical aspect of Guatemala, but once they stumbled upon that land and they saw how easily and how productively the land could be used, in particularly you know, even using European styles of agriculture, that's how malleable the land was. That is what was really critical, and that's why they elevated Guatemala's importance in the scheme of the, the empire at large it did become almost accidentally a very key part of the Spanish empire in the Americas. This, of course, there's a lot of tensions, you know, between the Spanish coming in and brutalizing the local population, taking all of this immense wealth for themselves. And again, you know, Guatemala's landlords are some of the most egregious, all of the Central American landlords at the time are horrific, but the Guatemalans are, because they're making so much money and because there's such clear racial delineation, you know, between the white Spanish descendant Criollos and the indigenous people, the Maya civilizations chiefly, but also others, there's a very, very horrific apartheid that emerges, you know, in terms of, you know, where indigenous people are allowed to go. As I said, they can't even leave land that they've been allotted to under the encomienda system. They can't leave that land without their landlord's permission. They're slaves on their own soil which, um, you know, is a tension that just can't be ignored. It's a historical tension that eventually has to reach a climax. And it, of course, reaches a climax when we see this wave of independence coming across Latin America, as we've discussed in many other cases. In Central America, this comes in the late 
tens, and then eventually in 1821, we see Gawino Gainza Fernandez take charge. Now, originally, Gainza Fernandez was a royalist. He was a criollo, so a white Guatemalan, descendant of the Spanish, but born in Guatemala. He was a pro-Spanish uh, general. He eventually, though, he begins to resent the fact that the Spanish crown is being so brutal in its treatment, not with indigenous people. He doesn't care about indigenous people. He's just as racist as the Spanish are. But the treatment of other criollos that are on the side of independence, he can't rationalise that the Spanish would treat white Guatemalans the same as indigenous Guatemalans. So in a really twisted sort of logic, he comes to switch sides. He begins fighting against the Spanish. And then in 1821, specifically the 15th of September, it's a very critical day in that year, he goes into Guatemala City with his forces. He makes the Spanish surrender and he announces the independence of Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica and Honduras. So in a way, Guatemala is the birthplace of Central American independence because that is where the independence of all of these countries was officially signed. In a remarkable way, this racist man, Gainza Fernandez, was really, really critical in achieving liberation, at least official liberation, I should say, from the Spanish Empire. Now, of course, there's a caveat after that. As I mentioned, he's not a nice man, Gainza Fernandez, and he forces Guatemala and the rest of Central America, as a result, uh, to join the Mexican Empire, which has just been founded in 1821 as well, under Agustin de Iturbide. Now, I mentioned him when we discussed Mexico. He's a very similar man to Gainza Fernandez. They're both criollos, so born in their respective countries of Spanish descent, originally both pro-Spain, and then, for various reasons, turned on Spain. But, you know, they're very much conservative. They're very much pro the Catholic Church. They're very much in favour of maintaining the control of land in the hands of landowners. So, you know, this is the political and economic and social alliance that is very easy to create between Benita Fernandez and Iturbide. Now, of course, this doesn't sit well with the rest of Central America, and it doesn't sit well with most Guatemalans either, because they've just freed themselves from an empire, from the Spanish empire, and they have no intention of being under the control of a Mexican empire, particularly a Mexican empire that has such reactionary views and that is essentially going to keep things the same, but you're just going to replace, you know, the Spanish colonial authorities with Mexican colonial authorities or their Guatemalan allies. We see resistance. We see sort of conservative liberal dichotomy emerge across Central America, including in Guatemala. Um, but interestingly, the change comes from outside this time. And that's from Honduran leader Francisco Morazan. Now, again, I've mentioned him. Uh, it's interesting with Guatemala because we can tie in all of the previous interviews with this one country. So Morazan was from Honduras. He, he led the liberal forces against the conservatives, so against uh, Gainza Fernandez. And he ends up creating the United Provinces of Central America. He defeats the Guatemalan conservatives in this first instance. And Morazan, as I've said before, he was a very progressive individual. He wanted Central America to be a progressive, secular, an independent, a sovereign country that can arrange and organise its own internal affairs without the intervention of larger empires, without the intervention of other countries. He essentially comes to modernise Central America's institutions, and this includes Guatemala. So he makes uh, primary school education 
free, universal, uh, certain standard of very basic healthcare becomes available to everyone, free, but very basic. I do want to emphasise that we're not talking about comprehensive healthcare, but this is more than most Guatemalans or Central Americans had ever had prior. So it is important to recognise that, and she severely curtails the power of the Catholic clergy. And this is where we begin to see dissent emerge within some of the other Central American polities. The strongest opposition to this project, this liberal project, is Guatemala. Uh, Now, as I mentioned, the Catholic Church and the landowners in Guatemala were very, very keen on maintaining their control over this land. Because of how fertile and how wealthy the land was at the time, they enjoy a lot of wealth and a lot of influence and a lot of control in this United Provinces. And they coalesce, the church and the landlords coalesce around a, a very pivotal individual, Rafael Carrera. Carrera is a very, he's an interesting man. He's a critical man for the history of Guatemala and Central America because he leads to the destruction of the United Provinces of Central America. But he is, in a very strange way, remembered very fondly in Guatemala to this day, including among indigenous people. And I'll explain why. So, chiefly, this is down to the fact that Carrera was a poor. He was born into a very poor family in remote northern Guatemala. He's a mestizo, so he is part indigenous himself. He's a man of colour, but he's intensely conservative. He worked his way up from being a soldier, a regular soldier, up to being a general in the Guatemalan armed forces. This was in the time of Spanish colonial rule. And these sort of conservative views sort of just like percolated in his mind while he was in the armed forces. He was always very religious, very committed to the Catholic Church. He wasn't a landowner until later, but also because of his part Indigenous ancestry and his very sort of charismatic persona, he was very popular with the Mayan peoples of Guatemala. And so he actually rallied you know, a very wide sort of cross-section of allies to his side, Catholic Church, landlords and Indigenous people, and he began an insurrection against Morazan. So he began an insurrection to essentially um, make Guatemala an independent country to secede from the United Provinces. Morazan and the more progressive sort of liberals are very, very opposed to Carrera. There's also a bit of a personal enmity between the two men because Morazan ordered the execution of Carrera's father-in-law during an earlier insurrection. So, you know, there is actual, you know, very personal sort of, rivalry between the two men, we see the beginning of a very, very unfortunate, a very brutal civil war as well that pretty much lasts from the early 1820s right up until uh, 1844. So this is a very long civil war. Its intensity varies depending on where we're talking about in Central America. For large parts of this this time, Nicaragua and El Salvador aren't really touched by the civil war. But in Guatemala, yes, this is a very, very intense conflict, pretty much for the entire two decades or just under two decades that this civil war goes on. It's a very, very complicated back and forth. We see times when Morazan gains the initiative, marches his forces into Guatemala City, Carrera flees into the mountains with his indigenous armies, and then they march back in, you know, a year later and reconquer Guatemala, and then they push into Honduras or El Salvador and take territory. So, you know, there's this constant fluctuation of the sort of front line for a very long time. The great powers, you know, the imperial powers are watching this very intensely and they're not always sure who to support because the lines are, slow, are so blurred. You know, they know that Morazan 
wants to make the United Provinces their own power, a sovereign power. But on the other hand, they're very afraid of Carrera because he's allied to the Mayan civilization. So they don't really know which side to trust. So they sort of just stay out of this conflict for the most part. But eventually, we see Carrera win. Carrera is a military genius. So was Morazan. But Carrera was able to leverage, as I said, a large portion of the Guatemalan population. He had the money of the Catholic Church and the landlords behind him. And of course, the Guatemalan landlords were the wealthiest landlords in Central America by a long shot. With these resources and with the trust, this remarkable trust that he was able to establish with the Mayans, he is able to defeat Morazan. He is able to defeat all of Morazan's allies and he achieves Guatemala's independence. Technically, Guatemala is independent from 1844 onwards. They function as their own state. But in 1847, Guatemala declares itself officially as an independent republic. And of course, Guatemala leaving is sort of the domino that leads to the collapse of the Central American provinces. So they all end up seceding. Everyone has their own view. What I think was a very, very noble project collapses, unfortunately. And, you know, Morazan, by the late 1840s, he's he's been removed from power by his own allies who are, you know, who were not content with the fact that he's ended up losing to Carrera. Guatemala secedes. And we see Carrera consolidate the Republic in his first year. So he essentially enshrines the power of the Catholic Church in the Guatemalan constitution. He provides guarantees for the land-owning elite, that they can pretty much, you know, return to the system of encomienda. It's not called that anymore, but indigenous people are essentially debt slaves on the land of local landlords. In 1848, does hold an election remarkably for a man who was very, very authoritarian in his life. He holds elections in 1848 and he loses to the liberals because this sort of ultra-conservatism doesn't sit well with everyone. So he actually leaves. He goes to Mexico of his own free will. He doesn't think there's any bad blood between them at this point, which is a bit of a mistake, I think, in hindsight, considering the conflict that just happened. Um, But the Liberals ally with one of the most powerful families in Guatemala, the Aysinena family. They're still one of the most wealthy families, most influential families to this day. They pass a law ordering for Carrera to be executed if he ever returns to Guatemala from Mexico. So they essentially try to stamp out Carrera's legacy. They try to stamp out the conservative forces. And Carrera was not expecting this. He really did think that he he was just going to go to Mexico. You know, this was a temporary stay to see to some of his business ventures that he had in southern Mexico. So he's taken a bit off guard by this, but he returns to Guatemala. He enters through Cuefetenango, which is just over the border from southern Mexico. He begins to reassemble this indigenous army in, you know, the remote jungles of northern Guatemala. And again, he takes power. He's a remarkable individual. He's able to amass this indigenous army, march into Guatemala City. We, again, we see other countries like El Salvador and Honduras support the liberals in Guatemala, but he defeats them all. He defeats this sort of three-pronged attempt to crush his rebellion. He becomes president again in 1849. All of this happens very, very quickly. And he more or less rules uninterrupted until 1865 when he dies. And he just cements this ultra-conservative pro-Catholic church rule. He signs an agreement with the Vatican uh, to essentially ensure a consistent supply of funding for his government. Um, The Vatican is very, very in favour of Carrera. You know, it's a very interesting time, you know, when he's in power because he's 
key slogan, and it's a bit of a contradiction, was defend religion, death to foreigners. So we see this paradox, and I think the latter one, death to foreigners, was maybe why he was so popular in part with Indigenous communities, because he did genuinely have this idea that, you know, yes, the Guatemalan elite and the Guatemalan church would control all of the land, but they would be the Guatemalan elite and the Guatemalan church and not anyone else. The liberals, on the other hand, even though they were more progressive in the sense of social reforms, they wanted to convert Guatemala into, you know, a liberal capitalist country. They wanted to virtually eliminate the local economy and and welcoming European, Mexican and US foreign capital. It, It was a very complex sort of dichotomy. It was really sort of two bad choices. People have their arguments as to which one was the best one. I personally think neither. That's not here nor there. But, you know, we can't ignore the history that he was very popular with some of the most marginalized groups in the country for various reasons. He ends up dying in 1865 and he, his hand-picked successor, Mariano Rivera Paz, ends up becoming the president. You know, we see again this sort of, it's generally conservative rule right up until 1898. And I will skip because, you know, in this sort of intermediate period between 1865 and 1898, not a lot happens. We just see, you know, the consolidation of this landowning elite. And we see the election of one of the first civilian heads of states in Guatemala in quite a long time. In fact, I think it's in over 50 years, if if my dates are correct. And we have Manuel Estrada Cabrera. So again, part of the conservative establishment, but what he is known for, he is hated in Guatemala by most people to this day because he allowed the entry of the United Fruit Company into the country. He was the man that began Guatemala's very, very bitter and tortured relationship with the United Fruit Company and by extension with the US government. Cabrera was a very pernicious, cruel individual, incredibly opposed to unions, to progressive forces. And he signed a contract with the United Fruit Company in 1904 that gave the company tax exemptions so they didn't have to pay tax, land grants, and control of all railroads, so virtually all transport infrastructure on the Atlantic side of the country. You know, he's just selling off Guatemala at this point for the kickbacks that the United Fruit Company is giving him and his allies. And of course, people are incensed that this is happening. And only a few years later, 1906, Cabrera is facing massive revolts against his rule. We're not just talking everyday people in the streets, that happens too, but we're talking organised communist resistance, Um, we're talking liberal rebels, we're talking all sorts of cross-section again of the Guatemalan populace that is opposed to this freaking US influence. In 1907, you know, things get so out of hand, uh, Cabrera almost gets killed. There's an assassination attempt, a bomb explodes near his carriage. It it continues like this right up until 1920. You know, low-level insurrection, we have, you know, terrorist attacks, assassination attempts, and Cabrera eventually is removed from office by both sides of the Guatemalan elite, the liberals and the conservatives, because they see that he's his mandate is just not tenable, he's so unpopular, and they end up saying that he's mentally incompetent to run the country, which, you know what, is probably true, but they just replace him with a general, Carlos Herrera, uh, in 1920. Uh, Then we just see uh, a few generals take charge up until 1929, and then the Great Depression hits, of course, and this really badly impacts the Guatemalan economy. We see a lot of the demand for Guatemala's agricultural commodities, uh, not necessarily 
decrease, but the prices decrease. So Guatemala just, you know, the country sinks into depression, unemployment rises because the United Fruit Company is laying off all of their workers, and we see unrest again begin to rear its head. And the elite is afraid of another popular insurrection. So they throw their support behind Jorge Ubico, who's another general, and he was very well known in a bad way. He was renowned for what they called efficiency and cruelty. This is what the Guatemalan elite had to say about him when he was a provincial governor in Guatemala. And he won an election, a very rigged election. In fact, he was the only candidate anyway, in 1931. And we'll hear more from Sasha Gillies-Lakakis on the program next week with part two of Guatemala. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. And now we have the second part of the monthly Genetic Network report with Bob Phelps. The next issue is something you've been talking about for a long time, that you believe that the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, APVMA, has been captured by the industry. What have we got now to show that you were right all the time? <laughs> well, the Minister, the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, finally took this seriously as well. There was a scandal, uh, like a, a human resources employee scandal as well, which opened the Pandora's box that is the APVMA. Minister Watt, asked Clayton Lutz, that's a legal firm in Canberra, to have a look at the APVMA. The report found that the regulator is not only captured by industry, that it's supposed to regulate, that uh, many of the chemical reviews that it's been doing for decades, of course, had stalled, which is what we were saying as well. So at least it was acknowledged that there were real problems there, particularly since it was moved from Canberra to um, Barnaby Joyce's own electorate in Armadale. Green Senator Wish Wilson from Tasmania, who's the Shadow Agriculture Minister, uncovered these failures earlier in the year, got the minister to act. That's a good development, I think. Of course, the industry lobbyist CropLife is the one that has the undue influence on how agrochemicals and genetically manipulated crops are regulated because uh, its corporate members actually supply 85% of the crop chemicals in Australia and 95% of the GM crops as well. It's a thoroughly well-organised lobby. It's in Canberra. Their lobbyists are well-connected, particularly with the Labor Party. So it's to his credit that uh, the minister has uh, actually spoken up. However, the review that he now plans to do of the Clayton Newt's findings is being headed by someone who's been very involved in the industry and has done a number of inquiries that have come to nothing. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And how long is that likely to take? 
Well, he talked about it being a quickie, so I don't know. And we haven't been advised of any actual public hearings or anything of that nature at this stage. But we have put to the minister a very good scheme, which the Gillard government introduced, but Barnaby Joyce, as the minister after the 2013 election, cancelled with the connivance of Joel Fitzgibbon, then the um, shadow minister in the ALP, uh, the Gillard government's agrochemical reapproval and re-registration scheme was to have started on July 1, 2014. It would have required the regular reassessment of the safety and uh, efficacy of literally thousands of registered agrochemicals and veterinary drugs uh, every seven to 15 years. Many of these chemicals were registered last century on the basis of very um, shonky industry-generated data. They've never been reviewed since. Many of them are still in use, even though uh, they're banned overseas. I just think the scheme, since the Labor Party already did it once, that it would be very good for the minister to consider uh, reintroducing that scheme uh, now, bringing Australia into line with many of our trading partners, including the USA, the EU, Canada, and others, that require regular reassessment using data collected now, independent data, and also uh, modern testing methods, which weren't available last century, to reassess these toxic chemicals that, of course, are sprayed liberally in our environment, the residues of which end up in our food supply as well. I'd imagine that crop life is going to fight this. And the companies, the companies that crop life represents of uh, really cashed up and uh, I'm sure selling their chemicals is a highly profitable business. Uh, they've already captured the regulator and we just have to make sure that uh, the regulator m maybe becomes independent again. I mean, one of the problems is that the uh, cost, so-called cost recovery, where um, the people who are regulated have to pay <laughs> for the regulation, as they do in the case of the APVMA, automatically compromises the regulator's independence in our view. I think it's about time that uh, the chemicals industry should be contributing, but it needs to do it at arm's length through Treasury or finance in the federal government so that the um, APVMA can get back its independence and uh, get very serious about reviewing some of these older chemicals. You know, you can't review something for two or three decades and still be doing nothing about it when other countries have already banned it. Well, one of the other things about the APVMA, and unfortunately our food regulator as well, and many of the regulators are using these days what they call regulatory science, which I'd characterise as Mickey Mouse science, really. You know, for centuries, gradually the scientific community has, and philosophy have developed the principles of the scientific method, which are rigorous and need peer review of the evidence uh, and so on. But regulatory science, unlike conventional science, and I'm quoting them, decisions are based on analysis and interpretation of existing scientific knowledge and where necessary, assumptions to address data gaps or uncertainty. That is not science. And yet our regulators are making assumptions and making best guesses about the status of the chemicals that they are supposed to be regulating. They don't generate any new lines of inquiry. So if there are questions, 
they just guess the answer. They don't require the companies or anybody else to do the data gathering or the scientific research that would clarify the safety and the efficacy of these chemicals before they're allowed to come into the farm and food environments. This just makes the whole exercise really um, fast from beginning to end. Just to close, we want the APVMA to be genuinely independent. We want it to protect the public health, safety and well-being, and also, of course, the environments in which uh, toxic chemicals are liberally sprayed out on farms and in natural environments as well. Well, we were talking before about designer babies and what could be causing infertility. And when you think of how many of these chemicals are approved every year and added to the already huge amount of chemicals that are sprayed on crops and food. Yes, and of course the so-called active ingredient, the one that actually kills the insect pest or kills the weed, is the only thing at the moment that's properly assessed, if you can call it proper, by the pesticides authority. These sprays involve a whole lot of other chemicals which are supposed to do different things like spreading the active ingredient on the leaves of plants or operating in soil. They don't seriously review those surfactants and other quite active chemicals and some of them more toxic than the active ingredient that are included in these chemical formulations. And so you have to argue for years before you can get things removed. Fenthion was a chemical that was used for fruit fly control that was finally, through a huge campaign, banned about uh, three or four years ago. But the other one, dimethoate, has just come under review again because um, a number of surveys of food in fruit shops in the supply system have found excessive levels of dimethoate residues before harvest and post-harvest, dimethoate can be used on fruits that have inedible skins. So you're supposed to peel the skin off or at least not eat it. Things like mangoes, melons, mandarins and avocados in particular that are susceptible to Queensland fruit fly are either dipped or sprayed with dimethoate. And finally, the regulator is saying, well, we're finding levels of these organophosphate, extremely toxic, we're saying extremely toxic, insecticides on the skins, without any warning, on the skins of these uh, fruits and vegetables in shops. It's about time that dimethoate was also banned. So there's a discussion now within the system, including the APVMA, whether or not dimethoate should be banned. And of course, you've got the horticulture industry weighing in saying no no we can't do without it and others who are using organic or alternative methods to actually control queens and fruit fly are showing that it can be done and that a dimethoate ban would be desirable from a public health and safety point of view but they're saying that uh, if you make us use these other methods, um, then the price of these uh, mangoes and avocados, etc., is going to go up because we're going to have to take more trouble in managing our crops. I don't think that argument stands up when you consider the terrible cost to public health and safety of um, excessive levels of potent toxins like di uh, dimethoate 
uh, ending up in our food supply, even if it is supposed to be only on the inedible skins of the food product. Wondering, Bob, if these inedible skins are put into your compost or people who buy them, not buy them at an organic shop, do those chemicals stay in the skins when they're in the compost or not? Well, they would do unless they're somehow washed off. But, um, yep, they'd be in your compost going into your garden ultimately. They would gradually um, diminish in intensity. But, yeah, and organophosphates are now very widely critiqued and banned in many, many countries for being hugely important in the disappearance of many critical insect varieties which which don't eat our fruits and vegetables. So the impacts are very broad and general on uh, other organisms living in our environments. Very little is known about exactly what the overall impact is, but there have been warnings recently about insects in particular, which are important for pollinating crops and in nature, gradually reducing in numbers and some of them being endangered or extinct. You know, the the toxic chemicals can have all sorts of very uh, far-reaching and uh, non-obvious impacts that... uh, APVMA and others simply don't look at when they're considering uh, whether or not to allow these things to be sprayed on our food crops. Finally, talking about trees and seeds, Bob, what's the story there? Well, there's an international campaign to stop GM trees. Eucalypt, which of course are native to Australia, are now awful weeds on a number of other continents, you know, along waterways. You see um, eucalyptus trees growing as weeds. And they're also, of course, used in some uh, forest farming as well. In the Amazon in particular, they're pushing people off their land. Land is being cleared for um, tree farms and uh, soybean crops, genetically engineered soybean, and a number of other activities including grazing of animals. But the Amazon is one of the critical lungs of the earth. Those trees are essential to the renewal of the atmosphere on which we depend. The First Nations people who live in these forests, of course, are fighting back, but I'm afraid afraid that it has been a losing battle and many of them are leaving their communities and moving into the city or indeed, in worst case, involving themselves in these um, farming ventures as well. As a response to that, the groups in Canada in particular, but um, in a number of countries as well, got together in Brazil last month and were lobbying global leaders about the potential devastating impacts of industrial eucalypt forest plantations uh, for not only indigenous and local communities, but also for the global environment. You know, in an era of... Um, global climate change, we need those forests in place. Uh, They're a global asset. We need to play our part in uh, helping to ensure that eucalypt trees that are going to be tolerant of being sprayed with Roundup and other herbicides, for instance, are not planted extensively in other parts of the world. So there was a delegate from New Zealand, Japan, Chile, Canada and Argentina were gathering Uh, in Brazil, as I mentioned, and uh, are mounting a pretty robust campaign against those trees. On the other side of it, of course, what we see is that um, a concentration of ownership and of seeds in particular, but also um, 
the pesticides and the GM crops that we mentioned, the industry is getting smaller and smaller. And now there are only four companies controlling uh, something in excess of two thirds of seed and pesticide sales globally. So we've got the Bayer, which gobbled up Monsanto several years ago and is the biggest dog on the block. BASF, Corteva, AgriScience, which was a conglomerate that got together as well. And then ChemChina and Syngenta, which uh, coalesced a couple of years as well. So there are basically four of them. They own and control the seed. And the seed, of course, is um, rising in cost. A recent report said that it had gone up 700% from 2000 to 2015 for genetically manipulated seed, crop seed, and more than 200% for non-GM varieties. This has very broad effects again. It's among the input costs, including fertilisers, fuels, and many other things that industrial farming relies on. But the cost of seed is also now becoming a real issue and is one of the things that's driving up the price of food uh, in shops around the world as well. So shoppers are affected. The community as a whole is affected by the fact that we've got this huge concentration of ownership in the uh, production of our food supply. And just to close, there is at the moment the federal parliament, the Committee on Agriculture, is conducting an inquiry into food security. It says we call it food insecurity as uh, something like 2 million Australians are not able always to feed themselves. And they've been listening to industry and not to the community. But the inquiry is still open. It was open last December and is still taking submissions. If anybody's uh, interested to Google food security uh, inquiry, they'll find it and you can make a comment there and I would encourage anybody who's concerned about the insecurity of the food supply to have their say. The Seaman's Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. The 49th Australian Labor Party National Conference was held recently, soon after, I spoke with Dr. Alison Pronoski, wearing her hat as President of Australians for Warm Reform. Alison, how many of the issues you are concerned with were on the agenda? The first one, of course, um, is war powers reform. 
and really we didn't expect that that would be raised at the conference at all, and it wasn't, because, as you know, they made their two promises at previous conferences that they would hold their inquiry into how Australia goes to war, and they did that uh, last year, and the report on that came out in March, so we didn't expect that to be revisited in March, particularly because, uh, after March, particularly because the committee followed Niles's instruction and Penny Wong's opinion and made no effective change, which we've discussed before. But the interesting things that came out of the conference for us were all about AUKUS. There are two next big things. The first next big thing for Labour is AUKUS, because at the conference that issue was not laid to rest at all. And there are plenty of people in the party who say they're going to keep on raising it, and they made that very clear, even while the motion itself passed by the majority of the party. There are still plenty of people and plenty of branches in Labour that don't like it, aren't happy with it, and I think uh, will keep the pressure up. Alison, it deters aggression and it's going to deliver well-paid union jobs. What's the problem? So they say, but when you hear about 20,000 jobs, I mean, we've heard that before. There's absolutely no guarantee of what jobs it will deliver. And besides, several of the unions, including Maritime Services and others, are inveterately opposed to it. So they can see through this talk of jobs. And besides, if you want to create jobs, why do it? at such enormous expense. You could spend $380 billion building up the TAFE system or increasing the, the payment of low-paid workers or making sure that kids who aren't getting a decent STEM education get one in schools. You could do all of that for a fraction of the money. I don't buy this creation of jobs thing at all. Well, let's look at the party's long-standing anti-nuclear platform. How do they fit that in with their August submarines? At least they have affirmed their intention to ratify the Treaty on the Prevention of Nuclear Weapons, not in this term of Parliament, but in the next. As long as they get elected, that will be a step forward. But the obvious thing that is at the very bottom of the AUKUS agenda is the fact that they have no idea how they're going to dispose of the nuclear waste that is generated by the whole AUKUS program. It is for sure that the United States will not take the waste back and that it will not take back and decommission nuclear plants from the submarines. They will have to be dealt with in Australia, disposed of in Australia, and can you guess where? The fact is, South Australia has already decided they won't have it. The government has said it will be on defence land. So the only defence land available that's not somewhere in a city or close to a lot of habitation is Wangara. And apparently the army doesn't like that, but they'll probably be told that they'll have to do it. There again, if you don't want a nuclear dump in your neighbourhood, 
Why should we build one in the neighborhood of indigenous people? Why should they not object? And what I've been wondering is going to be the consequence if the voice is passed for uh, indigenous people to say, all right, here's our voice, and we are saying no nuclear waste dumps in land that we have ever occupied or that we occupy now, even if it is defense land, because we haven't speeded it and it was never given to defense, it was just taken, etc. So, you know, there is a long string of problems attached to that. It's going to be something that they will have to face up to pretty soon. And on the unlikely chance that they do get this up in the near future, could this open up the doors for a nuclear waste dump for other countries as well? Yes, as you know, that has been proposed by some people, thinking that the payments received by Australia for taking that waste would offset the enormous cost of doing it. Perhaps so, but the fact is that it, it just doubles or compounds the problems that I've just mentioned, which is where is it going to be, on whose land is it going to be, what objections are there going to be, raised to having it on that land, and if it's the whole world's waste, then even more the logistics of the thing, getting whatever is brought into Australia and put wherever it's going to be put, and then disposed of safely for thousands of years without any form of, of escape of radiation from this place. It just makes no sense. And so if that is at the very bottom of the whole AUKUS problem, you actually have to conclude that they'd be better to cancel it now and drop it and say, look, we can't do it and we don't want to do it. We're not sure we're even going to get the submarines we want. We're certainly not going to get them by 2030, which is what Richard Miles now announces told the conference for the first time that, that this is when we expect to have to confront China. If that's the plan, then really what Australia ought to be doing is reversing all of those things, getting out of it while we still can, and getting on with our neighbours instead of provoking them. Well, just on that aspect of it, Alison, we've got the message or the announcement today of this huge sweep of new weapons for all of the the Navy, the Air Force and the, mil and the um, Army. And don't imagine for a moment that nuclear armed submarines are all that it's going to be. Uh, tornado missiles were talked about uh, months ago and, and they said that they would be positioned in Darwin. That, of course, Darwin even more of time. And yet the philosophy seems to be that deterrence is what it's all about. We have to have all this stuff in order to deter China from exercising its will, whatever that may be. Quite frankly, I don't think it's deterrence at all. As I've said, I think it's provocation. And I think that's what the Americans want. I think the Americans do want to provoke China into some form of hostile act whether it's over Taiwan or the South China Sea or whether it's some apparent accident or, or 
something that gets fired off uh, inadvertently, as we've already seen once or twice before, any of those things could trigger a monumental war, not deterrence, but a monumental war. And so provocation is what really, it seems to me, they should be avoiding at all costs. Australia should be. If the United States wants to provoke China, that's their own business. But the United States can withdraw from this part of the world very easily and very quickly, and Australia can't do that. And also the other countries in between Australia and China, you've got Indonesia, you've got PNG, you've got you know, Philippines and countries in Southeast Asia, they can't move. Exactly. And that is precisely why they are trying to cut a deal with China all the time. They don't much like an unpredictable China and they don't much like what's going on in the South China Sea. But the fact is, most of them claim all of the islands in the South China Sea themselves, as China does and as the government of Taiwan does, for goodness sake. The recent uh, squabbles with the Philippines are over features that both China and the Philippines claim. And so these matters have to be sorted out, not by armed conflict, but by negotiation in international law and discussion. It, it is absurd to do anything else because otherwise uh, you would simply have World War Three, and that solved nothing. At the end of World War Three, if anyone was still alive, they would have to have the conference. So what you should do is have the conference now instead. You said before that the ALP had agreed to sign against nuclear weapons, but not until the next time. Why not now? Why have they put it off? I suspect that what Anthony Albanese has, or his advisers have decided is the voice is going to be enough to get past the electorate. It would be understandable if they thought, well, look, we better you know, not bite off more than we can chew right now. This is going to be something that we're going to have to look at very carefully, think about all the implications of it. We don't want it, for instance, to mess up our program for AUKUS to go ahead. And there are questions to be raised about the treaty in re relation to AUKUS. ICANN says that it's possible to have both the treaty and AUKUS if that's what they want. There's a loophole in it that allows um, nuclear-powered submarines not to be counted as nuclear weapons. But the whole waste issue comes into that too, I'd have thought. So I suppose, this is just my guess, that they're actually putting it off until they can have a, a, a clear run at it. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.